Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today we'll be talking with Melissa Albert about the Hazelwood. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series. Melissa Albert is the founding editor of Barnes & Noble Teen Blog. She has written for McSweeney's, Time Out Chicago, MTV, and more. Melissa is from Illinois and lives in Brooklyn, New York. The Hazelwood is her first novel. You can follow Melissa on Twitter at Mimi underscore Albert, and that's all written small case, or on Instagram, Melissa Albert Author, and that's all together. Before I welcome Melissa on the show, I'd like to share my review of her novel, followed by a short reading. The Hazelwood is a shivery delight, like a dazzling vintage ball gown of paisley silk slithering down over your head. Reading it is like drowning in musk-rose petals and damson wine. It begins in an almost conventional manner with a missing person mystery. Alice and her mother, Ella, live a peripatetic existence which takes them from Nacogdoches, Texas, to Brooklyn, New York. Alice copes with the frequent moves by becoming a loner, although she feels a fierce loyalty to her mother and curiosity about her grandmother, a mysterious, reclusive writer of fairy tales. When Ella meets and marries Harold, Alice and she stay still long enough for her past to catch up with them. One day, Ella disappears, abducted in front of Harold, This is no ordinary kidnapping, though, as Alice and her friend Finch soon find out. Their search for Ella takes them deeper and deeper into another reality, and the secrets of Alice's origin, and things start to get really weird. Now for a short reading, we'll be starting on page one. Chapter one. My mother was raised on fairy tales but I was raised on highways. My first memory is the smell of hot pavement and the sky through the sunroof, whipping by in a river of blue. My mom tells me that's impossible. Our car doesn't have a sunroof. But I can still close my eyes and see it, so I'm holding on to it. We've crossed the country a hundred times in our beater car that smells like french fries and stale coffee and plasticky strawberries from the day I fed my Tinkerbell lipstick into the slats of the heater vent. We stayed in so many places, with so many people, that I never really learned the concept of stranger danger. Which is why, when I was six years old, I got into an old blue Buick with a red-headed man I'd never met, and drove with him for 14 hours straight, plus two stops for bathroom breaks and one for pancakes. Before the cops pulled us over, tipped off by a waitress who recognized my description from the radio. By then, I'd figured out the man wasn't who he said he was, a friend of my grandmother, Altea, taking me to see her. Altea was already secluded in her big house then, and I'd never met her. She had no friends, just fans, and my mother told me that's what the man was. 
a fan who wanted to use me to get to my grandma. After they determined I hadn't been assaulted, after the red-headed man was identified as a drifter who'd stolen a car a few miles from the place we were staying in Utah, my mother decided we'd never talk about it again. She didn't want to hear it when I told her the man was kind, that he told me stories, and had a warm laugh that made me believe Deep in my six-year-old's heart, he was actually my father come to claim me. She'd been shown a red-headed man in custody through a one-way mirror and swore she'd never seen him before. For a few years, I'd persisted in believing he was my dad. When we left Utah after his arrest to live for a few months in an artist's retreat outside of Tempe, I worried he wouldn't be able to find me again. He never did. By the time I turned nine, I'd recognized my secret belief for what it was, a child's fantasy. I folded it away like I did all the things I didn't need. Old toys, bedtime superstitions, clothes that didn't fit. My mom and I lived like vagrants, staying with friends till our welcome wore through at the elbows, perching in precarious places then moving on. We didn't have the luxury of being nostalgic. We didn't have a chance to stand still. Until the year I turned 17, and Althea died in the Hazelwood. Today I've got Melissa Albert on the show, and we'll be talking about the Hazelwood. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Certainly, my pleasure. So we'll start off with the questions about Alice, our heroine, and her mother, Ella. They're more like best friends than mother and daughter. At the beginning of the book, Alice feels like Ella needs her and depends on her. Do those views evolve over the change of over the course of the story? You know, I really think they do um, because I think like so many young people, certainly like me as a teenager, um, Alice even more so than most, doesn't have a full understanding of what Ella is up against. Not only is she a single mom, but her situation with Alice is very unusual. And um, I'm not going to spoil too much of it here. We'll get a little spoilery, I think, but I won't go too deep into it. But um, yeah, I think by the by the end of the book, Alice has a fuller understanding of the sacrifices her mother has made and what she's done all of Alice's life to keep her safe. And uh, that's absolutely changes the terms of Alice's understanding of her mother's strengths and kind of the terms of their bond. Mm-hmm. And uh, some readers were critical of Alice. She comes across as sharp-tongued and defensive, but it seemed to me the premise of Alice's origin, which is revealed later in the book, demands that Alice be unlikable. Do you agree? I, yes, yes, absolutely. I think the kind of um, magical terms of the book, the origins of her of her behavior are explained if you read the book. Um, but she still is prickly. She's vinegary. And just because there's a payoff and an explanation doesn't mean that every reader is going to love spending time with a prickly woman. But I do. I absolutely love angry characters. I love prickly characters. I'm a huge YA reader. And two that come to mind for me just as a reader are Jude from the Cruel Prince series and uh, Sadie from um, Courtney Summers' wonderful book, Sadie. Just women with 
anger, women with a purpose, women who are not going to pack themselves in small to please other people. I think that's so interesting to read about. And I think that even if you don't like a character, that's absolutely separate from the question of whether or not their story is worth telling and reading. And I think that's the thing that I want people to kind of allow themselves to be carried away by a story, even if they don't know going in, do I really like this character? Mm-hmm. And I do feel in some ways it's gender driven as well. I don't know. That's been my observation that maybe there is less leeway for a female character to act aggressively. Have you noticed that as well? I have. And I think that's really interesting. And I do think it's changing. And I think that YA is like the bleeding edge of that kind of change, which is so exciting. And that's why one of the reasons I absolutely love writing and reading YA Mm-hmm. Is because when things, when big shifts happen and how stories are told and what characters are allowed to take the forefront and how people are allowed to be, I think it's in YA that those changes are really kind of seen first and it's thrilling. And it's happening all over media, but in YA, I think it's happening quite fast. Yes, we've had uh, several YA herons whose rage is intertwined with symbolic or literal depiction of fire. For instance, we have... Mm-hmm. Katniss Everdeen from the Hunger Games and Rin from the Poppy Wars. Uh, it was interesting to me that Alice's fury is icy. I mean, there are lots of references to ice in her story. Uh, what makes her anger different? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I kind of love that, that fire and ice juxtaposition, which I never really thought about when I was writing. I think the big difference, if you're looking at like a Katniss versus, versus an Alice, is um, Katniss's anger is like, cleansing right it's like righteous fire she wants to like Mm -hmm. burn panem to the ground to rebuild um she wants to burn down ugly institutions alice's anger is not a good thing it doesn't have a good worthy end it's um it's cold because it's calculating it's like slow and watchful (laughs) oh that's a great way of describing it yeah yeah so that's i think um so interesting to place it up against someone like Katniss. I think that really that really shows a contrast I hadn't even thought about, but I, I like that. And I like that thought. Well, Finch is a wonderful character, too. He's as wounded in his own way as Alice's in hers. Were you ever tempted to take the relationship between Finch and Alice into a more romantic direction? Well, I do have to say that... Okay, so the two, two parts of this answer. The first is that the Hazelwood was kind of always in my mind a mother-daughter story. Uh, even if they don't get a lot of time on the page together, uh, that bond is really what drives the story. So I do, I love a good YA love story. I just knew the Hazelwood wasn't that. It wasn't going to be a YA love story between at least mm-hmm. um, two romantic protagonists. But I will say that there is two parts. There are two parts to Alice and Finch's story. And the second is The Night Country, and that's coming in January. So no spoilers, but um, there is more to their story. Okay, so we'll all be curious (laughs) to see that. And the early chapters of Hazelwood include some of the fairy tales that Alice's grandmother wrote. The grandmother's story collection brought her fame and wealth, and those stories seem popular with your readers as well. Now, they're different than traditional fairy tales. Traditional fairy tales, I think, allowed children to learn about cultural norms and understand internal struggles. However, these 
fairy tales that you made up that are ascribed to Alice's grandmother are, I, I could describe them as nihilistic. And Finch is a mm-hmm. fan. He says, there are no lessons. There's just this harsh, horrible world touched with beautiful magic where shitty things happen. But many of your readers are big fans of those stories, too. Why do those fairy tales resonate with current readers? You know, it's funny. When I go back and read fairy tales, which I obviously grew up reading and loving, I kind of have this memory, too, of them being kind of like orderly and lovely and having like lessons in them. But when I go back, they're so weird. And Mm -hmm. good is rewarded and evil is punished. But it's such a simplified version of good and such a simplified version of evil that there's just so much space in the cracks to explore more. I mean, that's why retellings are so fantastic. And that's why these stories have like super bendable shapes that people have been and will be playing with for you know hundreds of years. Um, so you take something like, oh, God, let me think. Oh, like the juniper tree. And it's like uh, the tail types are kind of smashed together. And it starts with like a snow white kind of shape and then someone dies and it moves on to like a different shape and there's like transformation and there's murder and there's rebirth and if there's lessons in it they're so weird and they're so tangled and twisted and I think you can absolutely pull lessons from a tale you can pull so many things from a fairy tale and I think I'm definitely I'm not playing with something that wasn't already there I'm just kind of walking it in a direction down a little bit of a different path maybe then a Disney retelling might take it, for instance. I love the way you describe that. You're looking at the spaces between the things and, and kind of pulling out things from there, revealing oh, what's yeah, already there. There's so much room in tales because they're so fairly told. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and moving on from fairy tales to movies, there's a, a reference to movies. Finch says the following to Alice. Don't you ever feel like your life is a movie and you're playing a part and you'll waste all your time watching yourself in that movie, thinking at what a good job you're doing at playing you until you wake up and remember every person around you is fucking real. Do Finch and Alice avoid their feelings and responsibilities by hiding behind a facade of detachment? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. I think I'd have to go back to my own years as a teen when I may have looked like I was hiding behind attachment, but it was, you know, it's like that fake it till you make it. Like mm-hmm. everybody is terrified. Um, I just, I try to have compassion for people when I remember like everyone is terrified. No one knows what's going on. Anything you've ever done worth doing, you had to do it the first time once. So, like, you're constantly faking it to get to anywhere in this world, right? So, I think the idea of hiding behind attachment is something that people kind of throw at teens. But, like, teens are operating with incomplete information all the time. So, if they're hiding behind attachment, it's often because they just aren't given, like, the fullness of the information that they need to, like, operate properly. And you're just kind of trying to muddle through. And I think in Alice's case, I'd say particularly in Alice's case, she's not detached uh, by choice. She kind of has a detachment in a very literal sense from everybody but Ella. She has no space to root to. She has only one person to root to. 
So she's not hiding behind attachment. She's kind of battling against attachment, like she wants those attachments. And then in Finch's case, he has his griefs, he has rage, and he's kind of covering them up with an easier facade. And that's like an easier way for him to move through the world is by like pasting a smile on top of difficult things. So he's kind of covering up. And I think Finch is in no way detached. I think Finch's problem and also his gift is that he cares so much. Mm-hmm. And he cares maybe, and I don't want to say spoilers, but maybe too much about the wrong things at times. And it gets him into trouble. But yeah, that's, I think detachment is such an interesting word because it's, again, it's, it's like levied at teens. And I remember pretending to be detached, but it hid like, this roiling mess of emotions. Well, I guess it was the part about playing a part until you realize everyone else is real because there was another reference to Alice having to kill uh, a character. Uh, She's in danger. And then afterwards, that character, we don't want to give away too much, but that character isn't actually Mm -hmm. real in a sense that you and I are sitting somewhere in our real. And she tries to think, well, does that make it better? So that brought up this whole thing of um, are you cognizant of what you're doing? Can you feel what you're doing? Do you have emotions surrounding what you do? Are you acting your way through doing something? And in your case, they're missing a lot of information too. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like that. You're right. That bit about Finch. He is kind of, um, he has walked on the wrong path. He has kind of gotten, I wanted to be very clear in this book that although Finch is not the primary character, he's nor is he a sidekick, nor is he someone whose story only feeds into Allison. I wanted it to be clear by the end of the book that he's always had his own story running alongside hers, even if you're not in his head. And when he kind of said that to her, it's his own realization that he was so wrapped up in the narrative. He was telling himself that he kind of forgot about collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and then the, where that takes place in the book, that comes out pretty quickly afterwards. That Finch has made some decisions without taking into account the way everyone can be hurt. Exactly. So the analogy of being an actor in a story continues throughout the Hazelwood. Later in the book, we meet characters who literally have come to life from fairy tales. In keeping with the darkness of those fairy tale stories, those characters often act out in violent ways. And I thought that was really interesting because in real life, people develop personal narratives for themselves and they act accordingly. You know, someone may experience themselves as a victim over and over uh, Mm -hmm. and just have a certain reaction pattern. Don't you think many real people are prisoners of their stories as well and acting the same scenes over and over again? Oh, gosh, that is <laughs> that is such a it's a very dark take. But absolutely. I mean, it is it is, a, it is an, untru- an untrue one. Um, yeah, I think that you can become imprisoned by circumstance and by. You know, people say, like, change your circumstances, but that can be difficult or even impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, things become calcified over the years. So it's like your literal circumstances, that's hard to change. Your mental circumstances, like how you kind of process things, that's incredibly difficult to change. 
So I guess the book has a message of hope, right? Like if you want to take it as a metaphor, which I definitely don't write. I think when I write, I wonder if this is the case for most writers. I never feel like I write in metaphors. But when you look back later, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe this is something I was thinking about. And I put it into the shape of a story. But like I would never deliberately write allegorically. You know, I, I want to write like a, a story, mm-hmm. not an allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you look back, like just this conversation now, it is absolutely absolutely can be read metaphorically if you choose to. And then you can walk away with a message of hope that you could find a way to pick at a part of your life that doesn't make you happy. Like there are escape routes, right? Big and small. You can break out. Find those escape routes. Yeah. I think especially once you realize that you are telling yourself a story about your life. Right. And, it is a, and you can get some distance from it and say, this is a story. This is a mm-hmm. story that someone has created and I am acting out in this story and I can rewrite or withdraw from the story if it does not serve. Mm-hmm. And I do think most of us writers, uh, now, maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago was the fashion to first have your message and then preach your message. But, of course, that doesn't come across well anymore. I think most of us write right. to discover <laughs> a truth that's bubbling up from our subconscious. And then yeah, it those... feels like a, like a lucky side effect of writing. You're like, oh, I didn't know I thought that. <laughs> It's yeah, like personal therapy, and then you can kind mm-hmm. of, uh, I think, solve some of the problems in one's writing. So uh, you have read a lot, as you said, especially YA, and you were the founding editor of the BNN Teen Club. Do you think that uh, working as the editor helped you get a feel for the right tone and narrative voice to use with the YA market? You know, I think every writer is kind of uh, a product of the influences that they've soaked in since they were a kid, right? So there's like pieces mm-hmm. of everything I've loved. And for YA, I didn't actually start reading it until I want to say 2010. And then I like, ugh, just like whooshed through the Hunger Games books. And then in 2011, I kind of like took a deep dive into it and um, got very, very passionate and excited about YA because when I was a actual young adult, uh, it didn't exist the way it does now. Like the category, we had like Francesca Leah Block, who's amazing. We obviously had like Judy Bloom, Lois Lowry, Lois Duncan. Uh, but we didn't have, you know, Cassandra Clare and Angie Thomas. We didn't have like, you know, I don't know. I, I would have I would have died for Holly Black <laughs> when I was when I was that age. Oh my god, I would have given a limb. Uh, but they didn't exist then. So I had to I had to wait. And when I finally came back and discovered them, it was so thrilling. So yeah, when I when I sat down to try to write a book for the first time, I think it was 2011, I did like National Novel Writing Month, absolutely what came out was a YA book. And people kind of talk about like, why do YA writers choose to write YA? And some people say, well, it's because they had a great teenhood that they want to go back to. And some say there's something unresolved about their teen years that they want to go back to. And I've never quite been able to pin down what it is in me that makes me so drawn to the category, but I just love writing teen characters. I love the immediacy of the teen experience. And I love how um, every YA story is a story full of firsts, right? Like it might not necessarily be about first love, but it could be about like first betrayal, first road trip, first, you know, uh-huh. um, walking fresh. through a portal door, like everything's fresh. 
Uh, and it also allows you to play with circumstances. Like you don't have to be like, well, how did I get money? Like, you know what I mean? It can be, there, there's a, there's a freedom to, to circumstances and there's like that exciting kind of fungibility of their future. Mm-hmm. Like they haven't fully become who they're going to become yet. So it's all, I don't know. I just love, I love working in the space. Uh, and yeah, I think just reading and reading and reading great YA was really inspiring. Absolutely. Without being such a reader, I would never have been a writer. And when I did that, sit down to write for the first time, I couldn't even remember how a book was shaped. And I've been writing all my life. So I, I definitely looked at books as blueprints at that time. Uh, like literally, I remember looking at like a Libra book and reading it like a, trying to hug it apart into a blueprint. Like how does a novel fit together? And, and yeah, just using, using YA reading as my, as my jumping off point was crucial. Well, what I noticed about your YA book is, uh, I don't read a ton of YA, but obviously I read some for the show. Some of the YA seems a little simplified. And what I liked about yours, it, it was simplified, but yours, uh, is, is definitely not dumped down in any way. It's YA in that it seems very sharp and in focus and kind of driven more than uh, one of those very long adult epic fantasy novels. But it's definitely written for an intelligent, sophisticated audience. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think, you know, I am writing Upper YA. I think that, um, I mean, you just, you find complex stories written for every age group, which is really thrilling. And I think you find simplified stories written for every age group. You know, you can read a, a you can sit down with an adult novel, read it in an afternoon if it's if it's like a simply told story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that kind of complexity you can find in middle grade, you can find it in YA, you can find it in adult if you're the kind of reader who's looking for that. And you can find something that's more quickly digestible, and that's like a total pleasure too. I love YA. If you want <laughs> recommendations, please let me know. <laughs> Well, so you, uh, we would recommend your follow-up novel, of course, that's coming out later this year. Uh, since that's already got a publication date, are you working on a third novel in a series now? I'm actually working now on The Tales from the Hinterland, which is going to be a collection of stories, healthiest stories. Mm-hmm. So it will be all told a duology and a story collection set in this world. And I'm just having so much fun. Well, good. We don't want to keep you from your writing too long, but thanks so much for making time for the show today. Thanks so much. I had such fun chatting with you. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Melissa Albert about The Hazelwood. To find out more about Melissa, you can follow her on Twitter or Instagram. Twitter is at Mimi underscore Albert. On Instagram, Melissa Albert Author. Join me in October when I talk with Emily Robertson about her WYA novel, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the upcoming YA fantasy Girl of Fire, releasing November 3rd. You can find out more about my work at my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at GabrielleAuthor. And my name is spelled G-A-B.
R-I-E-L-L-E, last name M-A-T-H-I-E-U, 